If you're new with us, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in our final week of a series where we've been walking through the story of Jonah. It's, we're calling the series Overboard. It's a series where we've invited our elementary school age kids to be with us for the entire service. Kids, it's been great having you. And I want to do a quick review. If you were here last week, you know that after a lot of resistance and disobedience, God finally gets Jonah's attention and Jonah goes to Nineveh. He goes to this evil pagan people and he proclaims to them a very simple message. They will be overthrown. And kind of the idea here is unless they change their ways, unless they turn from their wicked ways, they are going to be overthrown as a people. And then something crazy happens. The Ninevites believe God. They believe the message that Jonah brings, and then they fast, and they mourn their sin, and they repent. And not just some of them. We're told that from the greatest to the least, from the king to the cows, they put on sackcloth. And sackcloth is this coarse, very scratchy material made from goat or camel hair. And to wear sackcloth in the Bible is to outwardly express something that's happening deep in your heart. It's to outwardly say, deep in my heart, I am filled with anguish and remorse over what has happened or over what I've done. And so they put on sackcloth. And then the very last verse of chapter 3 tells us this. When God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And I want to focus just for a minute on that word, relented. Because it's kind of the key word here. It's the the word that describes God. It's the Hebrew word, naham. Naham. And, And this word that describes God and how he treats the Ninevites means to be moved with pity. It's a word that means to show grace or mercy or concern or compassion. And we're told here that this is God's heart posture towards the Ninevites, a heart of compassion. And I I don't want to just motor through that point because this is something that is so very significant and special about our God. That he is defined primarily by love and grace and mercy and compassion. And that maybe doesn't mean a lot to you. Maybe you hear it too much in church and just tempted to sort of let, like, let, let that fact bounce off of you. But think for a minute about that in a personal way. Think about your relationship with God. Think about how he approaches you, how he sees you, how he engages you. Think for a minute about your very worst sins. The ones that you have tried to forget about, the ones you haven't shared with anyone, the ones that you've tucked back in your mind, the most humiliating shortfalls of your life, your biggest character defects. Think for a minute about the things in your life, your actions, your thoughts that you are most ashamed of, and then think about God. Knowing all of those, knowing everything about you, and longing to offer you grace and mercy and compassion. Doesn't that blow you away? Isn't that significant to think that the God of the universe, the righteous, just, perfect God of the universe, looks on you with compassion? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
So Jonah gave thanks to the Lord for saving the Ninevites and taught them to live lives of faithfulness to God. The end. You see, over and over in this story, we find these moments where the plane should land, where things should conclude, where Jonah should finally learn his lesson, and yet time and time and time again, here again, Jonah doesn't. Because this is how the story should go, but it doesn't go this way. Once again in this story, we have hit a crossroads where the response Jonah should have seems obvious to us, but it's not the response he does have. And so, Kahoot question number two today is this. What does Jonah do next? What does Jonah do in response to God's compassion for the Ninevites? Does Jonah decide to stay in Nineveh? Does he storm back to Israel? Does he pout about God's compassion? Or does he go into therapy with the whale? What do you think it is? And I'll give you a hint. It's not the therapy. Um, because some of the best films are the films that are inaccurate and incomplete, right? Yeah, the right answer is Jonah pouts about God's compassion. It should not go this way, but it does. And because it does, we have another section of the story. Because it does, we have chapter four, the chapter I'm calling, I want more than your obedience, Jonah. I want your heart. You see, part of the lesson of this story is that God longs for your obedience. He wants you to move from disobedience to obedience, but he wants more than just your obedience. He wants and longs for your heart. He doesn't want you to just stubbornly or reluctantly do what he says, but to be changed and transformed from the inside out. That's what God is longing for Jonah here. You see, at the beginning of this book, the beginning of this story, we're tempted to think, you know, God's big problem is, what am I going to do about Nineveh? What am I going to do about these people who are living in rebellion? But at the end of this story, it turns out that God's big problem is this. What am I going to do about Jonah? What am I going to do about this person who claims to on the outside be devoted to me, but has a smug, superior, snobby, self-righteous heart on the inside? You see, that's God's big problem. That's the big transformation that needs to happen in this story. Jonah's heart. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Again, all this compassion for Nineveh. This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. One translation of this verse reads, But all this, all this compassion was grievous to Jonah, a great evil, and he was very angry. And I like that translation because it, show, it, it highlights the fact that in this verse we have once again that word we've seen throughout, the word gadol, the word for great, right? It's the word that's been used throughout this story to show us time and time again that God and Jonah are not on the same page. You see, what is a great good to God, Nineveh's repentance, grace for the Ninevites, is a great evil for Jonah. It's very wrong to him. That's how far Jonah's heart is from God. 
Even in the midst of his obedience, even in the midst of this wonderful victory for God and his kingdom, even in the midst of all these people repenting and turning their lives back to him, Jonah's heart is still as far from God's heart as it can possibly be. Verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Friends, this is what scholars have referred to as a prophetic temper tantrum. <laughs> but there's more than just that. Uh, Jonah says something in this passage that's very specific. It's something that the Israelite readers of his day would have picked up on instantly. They would have noticed this thing that Jonah says. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Those were very specifically chosen words. And what Jonah's doing here is he's quoting one of the most famous confessions about God's identity in the entire Old Testament, which leads me to Kahoot question number three. Who does God first say these words to in the Bible? Gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Who does God first say these words to in the Bible? Abraham, Moses, Sarah, or Jacob? Log in your answer. Who does God first say these words to in the Bible? Survey says... I told you the answers were harder today. The right answer is Moses. Moses. This little phrase, this statement is actually from the book of Exodus... And you'll remember the scene, it's when Moses is on top of Mount Sinai and he's receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And then before he leaves, after he gets the Ten Commandments from God, Moses says, God, before I leave, will you show me your glory? And then it says this in Exodus chapter 34, one of the most holy texts in Israel. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth. Now, in this passage, again, God is revealing to Moses his heart, his character, who he is. And what's being communicated is that there are two very distinct sides of God's character. There's two sides to, to God's heart. There's, there's love and forgiveness and compassion. There's that side of who God is. And then there's also truth and righteousness and justice. And there's that side of God. And these two sides in God live together in perfect harmony. In fact, the rest of that passage in Exodus 34 explains this a bit further. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You see the two sides there, right? And so, again, this text was sacred to Israel. 
Any devout Jew would know these words because they would have memorized them from a very young age. They would have recited them in the synagogue or at the temple over and over and over again. And so when the Jews read this story, when they're reading the story of Jonah, they would realize something. They would realize that Jonah has intentionally left something out of this statement. It would be sort of like if you and I were at a wedding and the vows were being shared, and the bride said to the groom, I take you to be my husband, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, as long as we both shall live. <laughs> now, any word that you notice get left out there? What is it? Poorer, yeah. All of us knew, I mean, almost every single person in this room realized the word poorer was left out. And if you were in the crowd at that wedding and that was said, you would be thinking to yourself, wow, she either missed something or that lady was making a point, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening with Jonah here. Listen, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You see, in Jonah's statement about God's character, what word does he leave out? Truth. You see, what Jonah is saying here in the midst of his rebellion, in the midst of his little pouty pants temper tantrum is this. What about truth, God? What about justice? What about these Ninevites getting what's coming to them? Don't you know what they have done to my people? Don't you know the horrible, awful, wretched things they have done? And now you're going to just forgive them for free? No punishment, no consequences, no wrath? Are you kidding? That's the statement that Jonah's making here in kind of a passive-aggressive way. One author I read uh, a while back said this. You can tell you have made God in your image when it turns out he hates all the same people that you do. <laughs> now let that sit on you for just a minute. Let that settle down into your mind and heart for just a moment. You can tell you have made God in your image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. That's what's happening with Jonah here. God, I hate these people. I don't want grace and compassion for them. Why would you? But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. You see, Jonah's still waiting. He's still waiting to see something. He's waiting to see what? If God will ultimately take vengeance, if he will blast them, he's still hoping for revenge. And we know his heart is not where God wants it to be because the author tells us that Jonah goes where? East. He goes east of the city. And east in the Bible is symbolic of moving away from God, moving away from his will, his plan, his heart. And we see this in the Old Testament, time and time again, Adam and Eve leave the garden and they go east. Cain kills his brother Abel and he goes east. When Abraham and Lot separate, Abraham goes west and Lot goes And now that old Michael W. Smith song finally makes sense, doesn't it? 
go west, young man, go west, young man. And I was like, I mean, I remember listening to that in college thinking, why are we going west? Like, what's so great about west? I mean, I mean but now it all makes sense. Thank you, Michael W., for exegeting the scriptures. I <laughs> love that. East, friends, he moves east. He's moving away from God. You see, Jonah here is once again in rebellion. And that should shock you because think of all he's gone through. Not even the whole incident with the whale, the whale guts and the whale puke and the fear and terror of that storm. He still has not fully turned his heart over to God. Jonah is still in rebellion. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his, his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant. By the way, that word provided, you see there twice? It's the same, remember that word? Commissioned, appointed. God provided, he commissioned a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Now, that last little phrase is just in there for us Portland people, right? Because, see, God, he even loves and cares about the animals. And that's a whole other sermon, but it's in the Bible a bunch of times, actually. Another sermon for later. Okay, but here's the, here's the deal. We have this story of Jonah, and then there's this sort of weird story about a plant and a worm at the end. And the, and the question is, what is this little story at the end of the story all about? Well, I'm going to tell you that there's something going on here that's much, much deeper than just Jonah worrying about shade. You see, in the Old Testament, when God wanted to get a message across to his people, he would often have his, have his prophets not just tell them a message, because we can tend to ignore words that are spoken, which kind of troubles me a bit, given my profession, but we can tend to ignore words, but what we have a hard time ignoring are people's lives, and so God would have his prophets act out a message, often in a very dramatic and sometimes in a very shocking way. Example, God has one prophet named Hosea actually marry a prostitute in order to communicate to Israel that they are being unfaithful to him. So he doesn't just say it, he doesn't just share a message, he lives out a message. He demonstrates it right in front of them. This happens with other prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. It's happening here with Jonah. God is dealing with Jonah, but he's also making a statement to who? The entire nation of Israel. That's who this story is written for. It's written for God's people. It's written for you and me. And because Israel was a desert people, Israel largely lived and survived in the middle of a desert. They were not really water people, they were desert people. Because they were desert people, shade 
became very important to them, and shade was symbolic in the scriptures, particularly of God's protection and of his grace and deliverance and mercy of God's compassion. So shade was an image of God's compassion. And, and that's the meaning of this little vine story here. God offers compassion to Jonah by giving him this vine, by giving him shade. And he offers him this compassion even when he's still in rebellion. Even when he does not deserve it. And then what does it say? It says Jonah was very happy about the plant. In other words, when God shows compassion to Jonah, he has, and the, the technical words there are, great joy. And there's that word great again. So God shows compassion, grace, mercy on Jonah in the middle of his temper tantrum, even when he doesn't deserve it, and Jonah has great joy about that. But then, when there's justice and truth, when the worm shows up, then Jonah wants to die. So God is saying this to Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, you're so concerned about your little shade. You're so concerned about Israel. You're concerned about your people. You like grace and compassion when it's offered to you. You like God's mercy when it's offered to you, even when you don't deserve it. But Nineveh, they should get truth and justice. Do you see the disparity here? And the question God is asking Jonah yet again is this. Don't you get it, Jonah? Don't you understand? Don't you want to have God's heart for people in this world? And God's really challenging Jonah here again. He's challenging him to not just change his behavior, but to change his heart. Kahoot question number four. The final Kahoot question of the series. How does Jonah respond to this final challenge from God? How does Jonah respond to this final challenge from God? Does he argue with God? Does he throw another temper tantrum? We don't know how he responds. He finally learns his lesson. Log in your answer. How does Jonah respond to this final challenge from the Lord? Survey says, you're right if you answered in blue, we don't know. Now, when you're reading the story of Jonah, when you're reading the book of Jonah, you will desperately want to find out what Jonah does, what he says, how he responds. And you wonder, you're tempted to wonder, if you've read the whole story and you've seen the ups and downs and you've watched Jonah time and time again walk away from God, walk away from God, then finally go to Nineveh and then get challenged again, you're going to wonder, how will he respond to this final challenge? Will he get it right? Will he finally say, oh God, I've been such a fool. I've been so smug and superior. I'm sorry, would you forgive me and make me a vessel of your grace, Lord? Help me get it right, Father. Or will Jonah just dig his heels in and hold on to his arrogance, his self-justified, self-righteous, stupid pride? What will he do? How will he respond? And the answer is, we never find out. The story ends with Jonah just sitting there. And doesn't that drive you a little crazy? It's supposed to. <laughs> and, and I just have to say, I hate it when stories end this way. I'm not a big fan of the to-be-continued deal. I remember a number of years ago, my wife gave me a book to read, and she was complaining that I often read, like, 
Christian books or self-help books, Christian self-help books or theology. And she was like, why don't you just read something for fun? Just for enjoyment, just to enjoy reading. Because I don't do that too often. And so I said, fine, I'll do that. Give me a book. And so she picked out a book for me. And she didn't take it easy on me. She got me like a thick one. It was like 562 pages of pure joy and entertainment, right? Like, oh. So I got into it. I started reading it. And I kind of, I was like, wow, this is pretty good. I'm, I should read just for fun more often. This is entertaining. You know, I'm reading, reading, reading. The story was good. The plot was thick. The characters were rich. And I get to the end, and it was a cliffhanger. And I was not happy. 562 pages. That thing better resolve. I'm going to hunt the author down right now. Like, there's no sequel even. I mean, I was not a happy camper. And so the point is this. That's exactly what happens in the book of Jonah. It's just kind of up in the air. And the question is, why would the writer do that? Why would you end such a great story in this way? Because, you know, he couldn't think up a good ending? No. It's because the point of this story is not Jonah had a decision to make. The point of this story is you have a decision to make. I have a decision to make. This is actually not Jonah's story, it's our story. You see, a great writer knows that when you leave a story unresolved, people can't just walk away and dismiss it because it's all done, it's all tied up, right? You have to keep working it out. You have to keep wondering what could happen, the possibilities, the different endings. You have to, it just lingers in your mind. And that's the point, that's the idea. You know who else was really good at telling open-ended stories? Jesus. Example, the rich young ruler. Remember this young man, this wealthy young man comes to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And he says, I've done all that. And then Jesus says, okay, well, one more thing. Sell all you have, give the money to the poor and come follow me. And then it says, and the rich young ruler walked away sad, dot, 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 and... We never find out. We never find out what happened to the rich young ruler. We never find out which way this young man's life ends up going. And that's because it doesn't matter what he does. Because the story is not about him. It's about you and me. And the same is true in the story of Jonah. The question isn't, will Jonah's heart for people line up with God's heart for people? But will my heart for people your heart for people line up with God's heart for people? That's the question. Will what's great to me line up with what's great to God? Will what I think is great in this world be what God thinks is great in this world? The question, friends, is will you have a smug, snobby, superior, self-righteous attitude towards other people in this world, sinners in this world? What will your heart posture be towards them? Will you allow yourself to be infected by the loving, gracious, merciful, compassionate heart of God? You see, will Jonah, will Jonah ultimately have God's heart for Nineveh? Will you have God's heart for the Difficult, hard, bad, 
ungodly people in your world? Or will you have a prideful attitude of smug self-righteousness? You see, that's the question here. At the end of the book of Jonah, that's where it sits. Do you understand the compassionate heart of God? Friends, our desire as a church is that the compassionate heart of God would change every part of us. That it would work its way deep, deep, deep into our minds and hearts and souls that we would understand fully that God has showed tremendous compassion to us so much that we cannot help but be people who show tremendous love and compassion in this world. And that's why every week we gather around these tables to share this meal, this meal where we remember that God loves us so much, that he has so much compassion for us that he sent his son, his very own son, to die on a cross and shed his blood that we might be forgiven, that our sins might be wiped clean, that we might be, as the Bible says, white as snow and rejoined in relationship with God, our heavenly Father. That's the compassion our God has had for us. And that compassion must not just be a theological truth. It must be something that works its way down into our souls and changes us from the inside out. So that it just pours out of us when we interact, even with people of the world who might attack us and reject us and speak ill of us because I promise they're not as bad as the Ninevites. And that's what this table's about. It's about coming together and saying, God, I still need you to do work in my heart. I'm still asking for you, Lord, to come into me and change my heart posture. I don't want to just be a person of obedience. I do not just want to be a person who follows the rules. I want to be a person who is changed by your love and grace and mercy. And this meal is a chance to recalibrate your heart in that direction. And so in just a minute, the worship team's going to come and the tables are going to open and I'm going to invite you to come to the table. But before we do that, I just want to ask that everyone in here just close your eyes for just a minute. Just take a posture of thoughtful reflection before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Because maybe through this message today or even through this series, God is bringing to mind some people or a person that he wants you to offer his compassion to. Maybe there's a person that you've been at odds with. Maybe it's a person that on the surface you're fine with, but deep down there's something something you're carrying, and God is asking you to show compassion. And I do not know exactly what showing compassion is. I will leave you to work that out with the Holy Spirit, to just ask God to say, God, what's the appropriate action step of compassion you want me to offer? But maybe there's someone, and your heart needs to be changed a little bit, and you need to invite Jesus in to do some work. Or maybe this morning, you're here, And you're actually the person who needs compassion. You're a person who's never experienced the compassion and love of the Heavenly Father. You're a person who has been running from God. You were close at one point and now you've run away. Or maybe you've never even known him. You've never stepped into his love and grace. You've never accepted the compassion of God offered to you in Jesus. 
And friends, I want to tell you this morning, God is still pursuing you. He is still chasing you. He longs to lavish you with his amazing love. And if the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart right now, and you know that you've been chasing a lot of things in this world, and they've all come up empty, and finally, God is saying, I am the thing you have longed for. I am the thing you have needed. I am the thing that will fill you and make you complete. Do not ignore that. Do not ignore that call from the Holy Spirit because the gospel is free and it is good news and it is joy and peace and hope and life like you can't imagine. Maybe this morning you need to just pray to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if God is asking you to do that, if you're feeling a nudge that way, let me just encourage you, do not resist. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. Lean into all that God has for you and what he wants to do in your life because he has been chasing you and his spirit is pursuing you right now. And so I'm gonna pray. And if you wanna just step into a recommitted or even a first-time relationship with Jesus today, just in your own words, follow my prayer and just talk straight to God. He's with you. He's listening to you. He is right there right now. Father, thank you for being close. Thank you for never giving up on me. Thank you for seeing me for who I am, every part of me, Lord, and for offering grace and mercy and compassion. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die on the cross and raised to new life, that my sins might be forgiven, that I may have the opportunity to live with you forever, now and forever into eternity. Thank you for that gift. I receive it, Lord. I accept it. Even though I don't deserve it and have not earned it, I receive it from you. Lord, I declare that you are Lord, that you are the king of my life, that I need to surrender everything to you. And I do that now, and I will continue to do that by your grace every day. Father, mostly thank you for the way you love me. I love you in return. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.